Hello and welcome to the Turkish History Podcast. Episode 30. Al-Dawla al-Nizamiya. Before we begin, if you have been enjoying this podcast, I'd like to ask you to please subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast. It would mean a lot to me and would help more people find the podcast. Thank you for listening. So last time, we discussed the death of Alparslan and the succession of his young son, Melik Shah I. Melik Shah was a young man when he ascended to the throne, merely 17 years old. And though his father Alparslan had laid the groundwork for his accession and declared him as his heir, it was really the powerful Grand Vizier, Nizam-ul-Mulk, who installed him on the throne. After staring down a revolt of the Turkmen, furious at the young prince Melik Shah over the death of Kavort, Nizam-ul-Mulk seized control. Melik Shah was forced to abdicate a great deal of his actual power to the man who had put him on the throne and who commanded the institutions of the Seljuk state. This period of Seljuk history is often called al-Dawla al-Nizamiya, Arabic for the state of the Nizam. So powerful did Nizam ul-Mulk become that he became something more than a grand vizier. In essence, he became the co-ruler of the state, in fact, the senior partner. Now, the sultan was not entirely powerless, but he was very much the junior partner in power to Nizam ul-Mulk. As the medieval biographer Subki writes of Nizam ul-Mulk, his vizirate was not just a vizirate, it was above the sultanate. Al-Dawla al-Nizamiya would last for basically two decades, and it would be under al-Dawla al-Nizamiya that the institutions of the state would fully come into their own, and that the great Seljuk Empire would reach the zenith of its power and prosperity. But as we will see, it will end tragically for both Nizamul-Mulk and his sultan Melik Shah, and indeed, for the empire itself. Now, as we discussed last time, Nizam-ul-Mulk was able to quickly defeat Kavort and then stare down the Turkmen. And it turns out, this was really all that it took to seize control of the state. After the defeat of their father, the sons of Kavort and Kirman had no ability to confront Nizam-ul-Mulk and Melik Shah. Melik Shah's brothers had all been bought off. And in Anatolia, Suleiman was too preoccupied in his struggles with the Byzantines, and in any event, it seems that by now, the line of Chari had secured a sole claim to the throne of the great Seljuk Empire. So by 1073, Melik Shah was the uncontested sultan, and Nizam-ul-Mulk was firmly in control of the state. With the regime thus secured, the first thing that Nizam-ul-Mulk and Melik Shah did was resume the campaign against the Karakhanids. If you'll recall from last episode, Alparslan had died while marching to Transoxiana to secure the submission of the House of Afrasiab to avenge the murder of his daughter. His death had then necessitated Nizam-ul-Mulk and Melik Shah turning the army around to fight for the throne back in Iran. Well, as the Seljuk troops retreated back across the Amudarya, 
the new western Khan of the Karakhanids, Al-Tegin, took advantage of the situation and pressed forward. In December of 1072, about a month after the death of Al-Barslan, Karakhanid troops stormed the city of Tirmiz. Tirmiz lies on the north side of the Amudarya in modern-day Uzbekistan, just to the north of Mazar al-Sharif in Afghanistan, and was a major city of medieval Central Asia. It had long been subject to the great Seljuk Empire. From there, Al-Tagin crossed the river, plundering Balkh, as the attention of the Seljuk state was focused on the war for the throne. Ayaz, Melik Shah's brother and the lord of Khorasan, was able to retake Balkh on January 13, 1073, but his attempt to retake Tirmiz was unsuccessful. And in any event, he soon moved to the west to assist his brother in the looming civil war. And at the same time, amidst the disorder caused by the civil war in the great Seljuk Empire and the war with the Karakhanids, the Ghaznavids had invaded from India and had plundered the city of Salkakand, even capturing a Seljuk prince. So now that the civil war had been settled, the ruling duo decided that they had to resume the war begun by Alparslan and restore Seljuk control of the east. Thus, Melik Shah gathered up the army and began marching back east from Rey. Leading the troops in battle was likely an important part of securing his legitimacy. And it is important to remember that for all this period is called al-Dawla al-Nizamiya, Melik Shah was not a mere puppet of Nizam ul-Mulk. Yes, the Grand Vizier was clearly the senior partner, and as it was said, the Vizirate was above the Sultanate. But his power was not absolute. Even within the central state bureaucracy, he had a powerful rival named Taj ul-Mulk, who was supported by Melik Shah's wife, the immensely talented and powerful Karakhanid princess Tarken Khatun. And the Sultan, retained power and influence because Melik Shah was still critical to the regime's legitimacy. So we really should think of this as a partnership between the two men, with Nizam ul-Mulk as the senior partner. And putting the sultan at the head of the armies to secure his legitimacy is a clear sign of his importance to the state, and a clear sign of the power that he still held. So led by Melik Shah, the Seljuk army made for the city of Tirmiz. The local Karakhanid defenders were no match for the massive Seljuk army. After a relatively short siege, the Karakhanid troops led by the Karakhanid prince named Buga Tegin, who was in fact the brother of the Khan Al-Tegin, decided that it would be better to come to a deal with the Seljuks and return the city, which after all had been in Seljuk hands even prior to the war. Ibn al-Athir relates, The army filled in the city moat, and bombarded the place with mangonels. The garrison became fearful and asked for terms, which were granted. They marched out of the city and surrendered it. Bugategin was treated with all honor and respect due to a member of the venerable and ancient house of Afrasiab. Clearly, Melik Shah was not envisioning the complete destruction of the ancient and more noble ruling house of the Karakhanid Khanate. Upon hearing the news, that the massive Seljuk army had crossed the Amudarya and that his brother Bugategin had surrendered the city of Tirmiz, the Khan Ali Tegin realized that he really didn't have any good options here. Bugategin was the lord of Bukhara, and having surrendered to the Seljuks, likely that great city would soon be in Seljuk hands. And he realized 
that even Samarkand, where he himself now sat, could not hold out for long against the Seljuks. So he abandoned the city and fled to the north and the east, away from the army led by Melik Shah. And so Melik Shah advanced to Samarkand, taking the great city without a fight. The ancient city, what had been the western capital of the Karakhanid Khanate since the fall of the Samanids, was now in Seljuk hands. Melik Shah must have wondered at how far the house of Seljuk had come from the days of his great-great-grandfather Seljuk, who himself had fought to save this very city that Melik Shah was now sitting in from the Karakhanids, and had in return been granted pasturage rights nearby. What a rise for the Seljuks, from refugee nomads gratefully grazing their herds outside the walls of the city, to a sultan married to a Karakhanid princess and sitting in the palace himself within seventy years. With Melik Shah installed in the palace at Samarkand, and with Seljuk forces spreading across Transoxiana, Al-Tegin decided that he had no choice but to submit. With a heavy heart, he wrote to Nizam-ul-Mulk back in Iran, begging for forgiveness and apologize for taking Tirmiz, and he offered submission if it would save his throne. Nizam-ul-Mulk agreed, and he advised, quote-unquote advised, Melik Shah to accept the submission of the Khan. Al-Tagin thus formally submitted to Melik Shah, who then retreated back across the river to Iran. Thus the venerable and ancient house of Afrasiab, the great Khans of the steppe, submitted and became vassals of the upstart house of Seljuk. The Seljuks were now not only the overlords of Iran, Iraq, Syria, Khorasan, and Balkh, but of Transoxiana, and the very steppe world from which their dynasty had arisen. Even the remote and obscure land of Jand, where the tomb of Seljuk himself lay, was now under Seljuk suzerainty. In a sense, Seljuk, the founder of the dynasty that now virtually ruled the whole Islamic world, had come home. And you have to wonder what he would have thought about this. How utterly gobsmacked he would have been to learn how far his dynasty had come. With the conquest of Transoxiana secured, with the sovereignty of the great Seljuk Empire now extending up to the very borders of China, Melik Shah left Samarkand and returned to Iran. Melik Shah soon installed himself in Esfahan, which under his father had started to become something like a capital for the Seljuk Empire. But as befits a man who had grown up among the herds, a nomad warrior of the steppes, Alparslan had actually spent only a little over a year of his reign in the great city. The heroic lion had in actuality ruled from horseback, traveling the great empire constantly during his reign. Not his son. Melik Shah would spend his days in a manner more befitting a great Persian Shah in the palaces of Esfahan. And it is interesting to note that it was Esfahan, and not Re or Hamadan, that Melik Shah picked as his permanent residence. Re and Hamadan, as we have said, guarded the great pasturages of central Iran and were key cities to the Turkmen. By contrast, Esfahan was at a remove from the areas of Iran where the Turkmen tribes would graze their herds. The Sultan was quite literally separating himself from the nomadic tribes that allowed his dynasty to build this great empire. 
and this, of course, is connected to the transformation of the great Seljuk Empire during his reign, the work accomplished by Nizam ul-Mulk during al-Dawla al-Nizamiya. Now, we are going to discuss in detail the structures of the Seljuk state in a later non-narrative episode, but for now, it is sufficient to know that Nizam ul-Mulk, upon seizing control of the state, continued the work of building out and expanding the Persian-style bureaucracy and state structures. And he did this in such a way as to build a clientelist network around himself. As they came into their own, the institutions of the state became tied to the person of the Grand Vizier himself. And as befits a modernizer, a cooker of the barbarians, a master chef even, this clientelist network of state officials was of course opposed to the traditional Turkmen chieftains. Always, Nizam ul-Mulk would oppose the traditional Turkish nobility and the tribes, seeking to limit their power at every turn and even, when he could get away with it, kill them off. He even killed Melik Shah's own aunt, a woman named Gawahur Khatun, a powerful woman who had a deep well of support among a group of Turkmen tribes. In order to oppose the power of the tribes and the traditional Turkish aristocracy, Nizam ul-Mulk raised up the emirs. Now it is important to remember that the title emir could refer to both traditional Turkish tribal leaders and emirs who acted within the existing Perso-Islamic structure that stretched all the way back to the anarchy at Samara. Though more often than not, the traditional Turkish chieftains themselves would use the Turkish title bey in lieu of the Arabic title emir. But Nizam ul-Mulk was very much interested in empowering the latter, emirs who were not tied to the power of the tribes. Now these emirs could be Turkish, often Turkish slave Mamluks, but they could just as easily be Persian, Arab, Kurdish, or whatever. The critical thing is that their power did not derive from the tribes. They were not like the Nawakia, who were princes of the House of Seljuk in league with the uncontrollable Turkmen. These emirs acted in the traditional Perso-Islamic tradition, and as such, their legitimacy flowed from the sultan and then theoretically up the chain from the caliph. Now the practice of appointing emirs goes all the way back to Tughril, the founder of the empire, the cooked barbarian lord who always sought to work within the existing Perso-Islamic political tradition, had of course appointed emirs to govern various territories. This was part and parcel of his building a real Seljuk state, replete with divans, viziers, qadis, and so on. This was then continued by Al-Parsan, who if you'll recall from episode 27, appointed emirs to the fringes of the empire as he tried to secure the succession from Melik Shah. But the system came into its own during al-Dawla al-Nizamiya. Nizam ul-Mulk, always keen to limit the power of the tribes and to weaken the steppe elements in the great Seljuk empire, raised up and empowered emirs everywhere. As part of this, Nizam ul-Mulk massively expanded the granting of the Iqtah. This was how the emirs were compensated, and how their loyalty to the state and to Nizam ul-Mulk could be secured. This was the mechanism by which his patronage network worked. Indeed, Nizam ul-Mulk's use of the Iqtah was so extensive that some later historians inaccurately claim that he invented the system. Now this is not true, 
As we covered all the way back in episodes 18 and 19, the Iqtah emerged during the anarchy at Samarra as the Abbasid state was forced to find ways to pay its soldiers as the coffers ran empty. And it had precedents that stretched even further back, to the very beginning of the Abbasid dynasty, and even back to Persian and Roman tax farming models. But what is true is that the Iqtah came into its own under the Seljuks, and in particular here, during al-Dawla al-Nizamiyah. As we have discussed, an Iqtah was in essence a tax-farming fief. The holder of an Iqtah had the right to collect taxes from a given area in lieu of receiving a salary. By the time of the Seljuks, the right had further evolved to also administer the territory attached to the Iqtah. The Iqtah therefore resembled European fiefs with the crucial difference that they were gifts of the sultan and the central state, which could be withdrawn at any time. Now while this did happen, oftentimes an Iqtah would be reconfirmed to a holder's heirs upon the death of the holder, particularly for powerful holders. Nizam ul-Mulk granted Iqtahs to his emirs and bureaucrats who would then support him, and while the bureaucrats were generally absentee landlords, many of the emirs decamped to their Iqtahs, effectively ruling their fiefs as loyal subjects of Nizam ul-Mulk. But as we will come to see, given that an Iqtah could be removed by the central state whenever Nizam ul-Mulk saw fit, the holder of an Iqtah was incentivized to take as much profit out of it as he could. This, of course, led to mismanagement, as Iqtah holders stripped their fiefs bare, which in time would lead to an economic crisis. But that really wasn't apparent in the beginning of al-Dawla al-Nizamiyah. Initially, the power of the Grand Vizier became entrenched across the state, and a powerful core of emirs and bureaucrats, an expanded bureaucracy, continued to curtail the power of the wild tribes. But combined with the problems inherent in the Iqtah system, the creation of these powerful emirs would come to doom the Seljuk state, just as we have seen powerful emirs doom the Abbasids, the Tahirids, and the Samanids already. Because once Nizam ul-Mulk and Melik Shah are gone, the emirs ruling in their fiefs will come to realize that they are the real power of the state. And critically for the regime, there will not be a real counter to the emirs, as by then, the Turkmen tribes will have largely decamped to the fringes of the empire, and in particular to Anatolia, a process accelerated during al-Dawla al-Nizamiyah due to the transformation of the state. See, as Nizam ul-Mulk entrenched his control of the state, and as Melik Shah spent most of his time in the palaces of Esfahan, tensions of course grew between the increasingly cooking court and the tribes particularly the Nawakia. Now, as we have discussed over and over, there was always great tension between the Seljuk court and the tribes, and the Nawakia in particular had an ambiguous relationship with the court in Esfahan. They had, of course, essentially gone to war with Alparslan, even seeking the aid of the emperor of the Romans in opposing the sultan. Now that had largely ended after Alparslan's victorious campaign in northern Syria and the victory at Manzikert, and the Nawakia again recognized the sovereignty of the sultan. But as the state became increasingly more cooked during al-Dawla al-Nizamiyah, as Nizam ul-Mulk cut down the Turkish aristocracy, the relationship worsened. And both the cooking court 
and the resentful tribes began to feel that it would be better to have some distance. Thus the tribes were pushed out to the fringes of the empire, to the Caucasus, Syria, the Levant, and most importantly of all, Anatolia. The historian Durand Gedi has noted that the references to the Turkmen tribes in the old heartland of the Seljuk Empire, in Iran itself and northern Iraq, dramatically decrease in the Islamic sources during the reign of Melik Shah. Indeed, references to the presence of the Turkmen in these areas essentially disappear in this period. And the most logical reason for this is that the Turkmen weren't there anymore. This was, of course, more acceptable to both sides. If you're Nizamul Mulk, you'd feel much better about things if these savage Turkmen were not loitering around the central provinces of the empire. You hate the traditional Turkish nobility. You want to build a real Persian state. You're thinking, these people have got to go. And if you're a Nawakia leader, why stay behind in Iran or the central lands of the empire, where this Persian bureaucrat is going to continually limit your power, and potentially even try to have you killed? Why not travel to the fringes of the empire, where you can build your own principality and run it the way you see fit? Especially as the absolutely perfect pasturages of Anatolia are now wide open after the Battle of Manzikert. And thus it was that most of the expansion of the borders of the empire in Melik Shah's reign was actually accomplished not by the court or the sultan, but by the Turkmen. In particular, the Nawakia, now brought back into the fold by Alparslan. We should never forget that this relationship between the court and the Nawakia remained ambiguous and uncertain and fluid. I think we should think of it as a relationship under constant negotiation. The power of the court in Esfahan over the Nawakia emirs would wax and it would wane. The Nawakia's support for the sultan would likewise fluctuate, as would their independence. The principalities that they would establish, while part of the Seljuk Empire in a sense, were in other ways independent. This was not the sultan ordering the tribes to attack this city or that, invade here or there. But it also wasn't a situation where the sultan had no power or influence over the Nawakia emirs at all. And I think both sides decided that the best place for the wild Turkmen was the borderlands of the empire, and indeed beyond them. So under the reign of Melik Shah, the Nawakia began a truly phenomenal expansion of Turkish rule and indeed Turkish migration. The most important of these, by far, were the invasions of Anatolia led by Suleiman, the son of Kutalmish, that would eventually lead to the establishment of the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum and the introduction of the Turks to their homeland. As civil war erupted in Byzantium, the Turks flooded into Anatolia, and indeed jumped right into the middle of the civil war themselves. But I've decided to cover all of that after we close out the story of the Great Seljuk Empire as it will form the basis of our story going forward and the start of what I'm calling Informal Season 5. Trust me, we are going to spend a lot of time discussing the Turkish migration to Anatolia in the future. So instead, for now, we're going to end the episode by discussing the other invasions led by the Nawakia in the West, and the eventual victory of al-Dawla al-Nizamiya over these Nawakia, you know, the ones outside of Anatolia. Okay, 
So aside from Suleiman ibn Qutalmish, the other great leader of the Nawakia who really emerged after the Seljuk conquest of Aleppo and the Battle of Manzikert was a man named Atsiz ibn Uvuk. Atsiz was apparently born in Khwarezm, in Central Asia, and then migrated into the Middle East during the Seljuk expansion. We don't really know anything about his early life, but it is clear that he eventually rose to become a leader of the Nawakia as the tribal confederation formed. He had been one of those Nawakia leaders who had happily served the emirs of Aleppo and the Fatimid caliphs to the great displeasure of Alparslan. After the heroic lion then conquered northern Syria and the Nawakia were brought back into line, Atsiz rose further. As Alparslan marched off to Manzikert in 1071, Atsiz moved south, pushing into the lands of the Levant up until now ruled by the Syrian emirs under the overall hegemony of the Shia Fatimid caliphs of Egypt. Ibn al-Athir relates, During this year, Atsiz ibn Uvuk, one of the emirs of the Sultan Melik Shah, invaded Syria. He gathered the Turks and went to Palestine. He conquered the city of Ramallah, and from there proceeded to Jerusalem, which he besieged. It was garrisoned by Egyptian troops. He conquered it, and took the neighboring lands apart from Ashkelon. He attacked and besieged Damascus, keeping up a succession of plundering raids on the surrounding districts and ruined them. While Ibn al-Athir tells us that Ramallah and Jerusalem fell to Atsiz in 1071, Sipt ibn al-Jawzi says that Jerusalem itself did not fall until 1073. A Jewish chronicler named Joseph Ha Cohen, who was a contemporary of the events and who lived in Cairo, recorded that Jerusalem was in fact besieged twice. We know that in 1072, the year after Manzikert and the year of the accession of Melik Shah, the chutbah was read in the name of the Abbasids in Jerusalem, which makes me lean towards 1071 or 1072 as the year that Atsiz finally captured the holy city, likely requiring two siege attempts. Regardless of the exact dates and details, it is apparent that over the early 1070s, a Nawakia polity came into existence in the Levant. This polity was under the theoretical suzerainty of the Great Seljuk Empire, but was actually run by Atsiz. And it is here that I'm going to introduce a term that will become increasingly important to our story. Beylik. Derived from the word bey, an ancient Turkish title for commander that dates all the way back to the first and second khanates, and now basically means mister in modern Turkish, Beyliks were small Turkish principalities. Too small to warrant the title of sultan, they emerged under the rule of a Turkish military commander or bey. They would spring into existence, first on the fringes of the Seljuk Empire, and then eventually throughout Anatolia. And the Nawakia Beylik in the Levant was in many ways the first Beylik. The principality was ruled by Atsiz, but paid tribute to and was ultimately under the sovereignty of the great Seljuk Empire. It was a vassal state but not a state directly controlled by the court in Esfahan. This new Beylik, of course, came into conflict with the remaining Fatimids, who still clung on in Damascus and in a string of fortified settlements across the Levant, which were now becoming increasingly cut off from the Fatimid home base in Egypt, as the young Nawakia Beylik conquered Palestine and entrenched itself across the region. By 1074, Akar had fallen though in a sign of how tumultuous the nascent Nawakia Beylik was, 
the commander who led the siege, a man named Shoklu Bey, at first refused to hand the control of the city over to Atsiz, reportedly saying, I took this city with the sword. In late 1074 or early 1075, Atsiz was forced to ride out to defeat the rebellious Shoklu Bey in the field to enforce his claims over the city. After defeating his rebellious vassal, Atsuz then marched on Damascus to further entrench Nawakia power and complete his conquest of the Levant by driving out the last major Fatimid garrison. His army of wild Turkmen came before the walls of the ancient city during the holy month of Ramazan in 1075. But after a month of fruitlessly waiting outside the walls for the local Fatimid governor to come to his senses and submit, Atsiz broke off the siege around June. This was likely driven by internal political conflict within the nascent Beylik. See, after being defeated by Atsiz, Shoklu Bey had reached out to the sons of Kutalmish, who under the leadership of Suleiman, were at this very moment establishing something greater than a mere Beylik in Anatolia, building what would come to be the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum. We have a letter written by Shoklu Bey to Suleiman. The letter reads, You are a sultan who was a member of the House of Seljuk, and we would be proud and honored to obey you and find ourselves in your service. For the emir, Atsuz, is not of the House of Seljuk, and for this reason we cannot obey him. Now to be clear, I think Shoklu Bey was in reality more concerned about getting a powerful ally than theoretical loyalty to the House of Seljuk. But this letter really shows the fluid state of loyalty and power in the lands on the fringes of the empire. The lands at a remove from the increasingly cooking al-Dawla al-Nizamiya. And so Suleiman responded to Shoklu Bey's plea and sent a force south from Anatolia to Syria. Atsuz, breaking off his siege of Damascus, met this Anatolian force near Lake Tiberias in modern-day Israel, to the southeast of Damascus. The Anatolian force was defeated, and Shoklu Bey was seized and executed. This was not the only challenge to Atsuz and his nascent Beylik. Because the ever-centralizing, ever-cooking Seljuk court, al-Dawla al-Nizamiya, looked upon the success of the Nawakia and this new Beylik with a combination of unease and greed. In 1075, just as he was putting down Shoklu Bey's revolt, the court tried to appoint the Sultan Melik Shah's brother Tutush as the ruler of the Levant. To supplant fully this Nawakia polity and bring the young Beylik firmly into the empire. Atsuz, however, protested, according to Sibt ibn al-Jawzi, saying, I am the obedient slave and the Sultan's deputy in these lands. I take from them nothing but what I spend on my sustenance and that of my soldiers with me and I send to the treasury 30,000 dinars every year. Likely feeling they couldn't really spare the troops to challenge Atsuz at this time, Nizam ul-Mulk and Melik Shah backed down. But I promise you, this will not be the last we hear of Tutush. So the authority of Atsuz had been confirmed, even if he had been forced to give up on taking Damascus, at least for now, because it appears that in Damascus, the garrison of the city and the local people who happened to be fed up with the Fatimid governor, saw the prior siege of the city by Atsiz as the final straw. And so as Atsiz was defeating Shoklu Bey, they rose up against the Fatimid governor. 
According to Ibn al-Athir, many were the pleas raised against him. The army rebelled against him, and they were helped by the common people. So he fled to Banyas and then to Tyre. Later he was taken to Egypt, imprisoned, and died in captivity. But with the Fatimid governor now expelled, the city appears to have fallen into chaos. The garrison appointed a commander as governor who then clashed with the local population. Food prices skyrocketed, and Ibn al-Athir even reports incidents of cannibalism. When news reached him of the state of Damascus in early 1076, Atsiz quickly reassembled his armies and rode back. He put the city to siege for a second time in March 1076. This naturally caused the food shortages to become even worse. Reportedly, a sack of wheat sold for more than 20 dinars, a colossal sum. As the population starved, the garrison realized that there was no choice. The city surrendered. Atsiz entered Damascus on June 25th, 1076, and ordered the khutbah to be read in the name of the Abbasid Caliph. All of Syria and Palestine now fell to Atsiz and this new Nawakia Beylik. The rule of the Fatimids outside of Egypt seemed to be finished. Seljuk suzerainty, even if in some places merely nominal, now reached the Mediterranean and encompassed the third holiest city of Islam and the holy land of the Christians. Atsiz after taking Damascus and consolidating the rule of his new Beylik over the Levant, immediately began to plan for something truly audacious. Indeed, something seemingly impossible. To conquer Egypt and overthrow the Shia heretics in Cairo and end the Fatimid Caliphate. According to some sources, a Turkish commander serving the Fatimids named Ildenizolu deserted to Atsiz and provided valuable intelligence on Fatimid defenses in Egypt to the Nawakia Bay thus convincing him to launch an invasion. And indeed, Fatimid Egypt was in chaos. In Cairo, the Fatimid's Turkish slave soldiers had taken control of the capital and were in basically open rebellion against the caliph. Shocking, I know. I mean, who would ever expect a Turkish slave army to be less than loyal to its nominal master? I mean, that's just crazy talk. And in Upper Egypt, a Nubian rebellion had broken out and the Berbers were moving into the Nile Delta from the Great Sahara Desert. Fatimid's control over Mecca and Medina on the far side of the Red Sea had been lost, and now the Seljuks and the Nawakia had taken the Levant. So in desperation, the Fatimid caliphs had turned to the immensely talented former governor of Syria, a man named Badr al-Jamali. Badr was appointed as Grand Vizier, and he quickly put down the Turkish mutiny in Cairo. It was likely at this time, following the suppression of the Turkish slave army, that Ildenizolu fled Cairo to join up with Atsiz. And now, just as Atsiz had conquered Jerusalem, Badr had assembled an army and marched south to put down the Nubian uprising in Upper Egypt. Cairo, it seems, had been left unguarded. Atsiz therefore decided that now was the perfect time to strike. Melik Shah, of course, was completely supportive of this. If successful, Seljuk's suzerainty, even if merely nominal, would extend basically over the whole Muslim world. His role as the defender and champion of Sunni orthodoxy would be beyond reproach, and the House of Seljuk would finally fulfill the dreams of Tukhrul, the founder of the empire, and re-knit the lands of Islam. So Melik Shah sent at least 3,000 Turkish Mamluks to Atsiz and promised further support. We don't know how much Nizam-ul-Mulk was involved in this decision, 
but he must at the very least have approved of it. With his army thus assembled in Syria, Atsuz left Damascus in the fall of 1076, mere months after taking the city. We don't know how large his army was. I read one source that says that it was around 5,000 strong, which seems a little bit on the low side. But based on what's about to happen, it does seem that Atsuz did not bring enough troops with him. So I think we should imagine that this was a relatively small army, even if we don't know the exact numbers. The Nawakia army quickly advanced down through Palestine, across Sinai, and entered into the Nile Delta. According to Ibn Ulusir, the army besieged one of the largest cities in the Delta, though unfortunately we don't know which one, and it fell within 50 days. From there, Atsiz and his army began marching towards Cairo. Now this was a problem for the Fatimids. As the Nawakia Bey began marching on the capital, the main Fatimid army was campaigning thousands of miles to the south in Upper Egypt. And this is pure speculation, but perhaps it was this intelligence delivered by the rebel Turkish commander Ildenizolu to Atsiz that convinced him to march on Egypt quickly. So quickly he couldn't assemble enough men. So without a Fatimid army in Lower Egypt capable of defending the capital, the caliph decamped the city and raced south to join Badr and his army in Upper Egypt. Atsuz and the Nawakia were able to enter Cairo in late 1076. That Jewish chronicler who I mentioned, Joseph Ha Cohen, recorded the carnage. They entered Cairo, robbed and murdered and ravished and pillaged the storehouses. They were a strange people, girt with garments of many colors, armored and officered, and capped with helmets red and black. They trumpet like elephants and roar like the roaring ocean. They laid waste the cities, and they were made desolate. God remembered what they had done to the people of Jerusalem. They besieged them twice in two years, and burned the heaped corn and destroyed the palaces, and cut down the trees, and trampled upon the vineyards, despoiled the graves, and threw out the bones. As the Nawakia despoiled Cairo, Badr broke off a 2,000-man detachment from his army in Upper Egypt and sent them racing north to Cairo. Outside the walls of Cairo, the Fatimid army engaged Atsiz and his Turkmen in January 1077. According to some sources, the Fatimids were able to induce the defection of a portion of the Turkmen led by the father of the dead Shoklu Bey. Whatever the details, the results are not in question. The Nawakia army was routed. Ibn Athir claims that most of the Nawakia troops were slain. Atsuz barely escaped with a handful of his men. Humiliated, he fled back from Egypt towards Palestine and then on to Syria. He arrived in Damascus broken on February 7, 1077. According to Sibd ibn al Jawzi, he had only 15 men remaining of the army he had led to Egypt. And Ibn al Athir relates. He retired unaccountably in a most wretched state. He arrived at Damascus, having been deserted by his men. The writing was now on the wall for Atsuz. His failure in Egypt had been a catastrophe, and it had fatally weakened his fledgling Beylik. News soon came to him that the population of Jerusalem had risen up, and the men he had left to hold the city were now virtual prisoners in the citadel. Desperate to preserve his power, he gathered up the forces he could get his hands on and raced to Jerusalem. There, his Turkmen army sacked the holy city. According to Ibn al-Athir, 
he attacked and broke into the city by force and sacked it. Large numbers were killed, even those who had taken refuge in Al-Aqsa Mosque and Al-Haram al-Sharif. He spared only those who were in the Dome of the Rock. And news of this sack would eventually come to Byzantium and then travel to Western Europe, where it will weave together with tales of Turkish raiding in Anatolia to form a great story of Turkish depredation of the Roman Empire and the Holy Land. A story that would, in the decades to come, eventually launch a new type of holy war and bring a new invader from the West. But sacking Jerusalem did not save Atzas. As he raced around Palestine attempting to put down revolts sprouting up throughout the region, in Egypt, the Fatimid Grand Vizier Badr was assembling an army to capitalize on the defeat of the Nawakiya outside of Cairo. And more importantly, in Esfahan, Nizam ul Mulk and Melik Shah saw the defeat of Atsiz in Egypt and the impending collapse of his Beylik as the perfect opportunity to consolidate their control over the Levant and completely incorporate it into the Great Seljuk Empire. And so in 1078, Melik Shah's brother Tutush was appointed as the governor of Syria and sent west with an army. The Seljuk court was moving to destroy its vassal, the Beylik led by the troublesome Nawakia, just as the armies of Egypt advanced east. Tutush and his army reached Aleppo in late 1077. After submitting to Al-Barslan six years earlier, the emirate had fallen into civil war, with power oscillating between the Mirdasi dynasty, the Nawakia Turkmen overlords, and the Turkish slave soldiers of the dynasty. The great army of Tutush put the city to siege. But three months after Tutush appeared outside the walls of Aleppo, he received urgent messages from Atsiz. An Egyptian army, sent east by the formidable Badr, had arrived in Palestine. It had swiftly secured the submission of Acre, Gaza, Ashkelon, and the cities of the coast of Palestine before marching to Damascus. There, Atsiz was put to siege in his capital. Desperately, he sent word to Tutush, hoping for aid and clemency. No doubt, he was praying that he would at least be left alive. Upon receiving word of the Fatimid invasion and the siege of Damascus, Tutush lifted the siege of Aleppo and began marching south towards Damascus. When the Fatimid expeditionary force heard of the approach of Tutush and his mighty Seljuk army, they realized that there was no realistic way for them to hold on to Damascus. So they broke off the siege and retreated, hoping at the very least to maintain their control of Gaza and Ashkelon and southern Palestine. Thus Damascus was wide open when Tutush finally approached the city, where Atsiz sat dejectedly amidst the ruins of his Nawakia Beylik. When Tutush approached the walls of Damascus, he sent word to Atsuz demanding that he come out to meet him. Atsuz reluctantly dragged himself out of his capital and appeared before Tutush and his great army. Tutush was furious with him and was clearly not going to let this chance to end the Nawakia Beylik go. According to Ibn al-Athir, he reprimanded him. And Atsuz made various apologies, which Tutush did not accept, but arrested him immediately and executed him without delay. He took over the city and dispensed good government and justice to the people. Thus, the Nawakia Beylik in the Levant, one of, if not the first, Turkish Beyliks came to an end, brought directly into the fold of the great Seljuk Empire by Tutush. 
but Tutush had not yet firmly brought the Levant and Syria under Seljuk control. To the south, the Fatimids retained control of a thin strip of Palestine. And more importantly, to the north, the remnants of the Emirate of Aleppo clung to power. But we will discuss Tutush's rule in Syria and the final battle for Aleppo in later episodes. For now, it is sufficient to know that Tutush had embedded himself in Syria and Palestine, ruling as governor on behalf of the court in Esfahan. Under Tutush, the great Seljuk Empire had swallowed the Nawakia Beylik. The power of al-Dawla al-Nizamiyah had never been stronger. But in conquering Syria and the Levant, Tutush had become a powerful emir in a state now distressingly full of other powerful emirs. And in fact, his conquest of Damascus also marks the beginning of his own emirate. And next time, we will discuss the end of al-Dawla al-Nizamiyah as Nizam ul-Mulk and Melik Shah continue to expand the power of the state, but also set into motion the events that would end the golden age of the Seljuks. How the seeds of destruction planted here, during al-Dawla al-Nizamiyah, would ultimately flower and bring to an end the united Great Seljuk Empire. <laughs>